Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Daily Dialectic with me, Ted Matrakis, the podcast where I talk about philosophy, history, culture, politics, and so on. Today, I'm going to talk all about one philosopher, Socrates. Western philosophy usually is talked about as beginning with him, although there were philosophers before him. They're called the pre-Socratics, and they're cool, but maybe we can talk about them a different time. Uh, with Socrates, you can see how truth and politics and death and justice and all of these things converge into one character. Uh, with the philosophers before him, that wasn't really the case. Uh, for the most part. So with Socrates, truth itself becomes supremely important. No one before him was as purely devoted to truth itself for its own sake as he was. Before Socrates, philosophers had like, you know, material interests in nature and various other scientific things. With Socrates, it's just truth in a sort of different way. And he's had, a, obviously, a very big impact. You don't need me to tell you that. But the whole tendency of philosophy since him, since him has been to sort of hyper-focus on the truth in this very weird way. So he claims to be extremely devoted to truth. He claims to hate lies and to hate bullshit. But is that really the case? Was he honest? Was he truthful? Or was he full of shit? And another question, did he deserve to die? Spoiler alert, he dead. So he says at one point, I prefer nothing unless it is true. So he prefers the truth to absolutely anything. He says famously that the unexamined life is not worth living, which basically basically means if you're not constantly looking for the truth of your own life, then you shouldn't even bother being alive. His personal model motto is know thyself. Look for the truth of your own being and existence. And then once you find that, you can build on it and find objective truth in art and politics in other areas. And so you can tell that Socrates doesn't actually want anything to change in society because he's so focused on the self and looking for the truth inside of your own consciousness and inside of your own heart and soul. So he has this idea that there can't be justice in society until first there's justice in the hearts and souls and minds of every individual person. And then you can build out from that. But of course, there can never be perfect justice within anyone. Because the soul is this elusive thing that doesn't really exist. So you end up getting stuck within it forever. And this is one of the main innovations that Socrates brings onto the world historical stage. This emphasis on the soul. Uh, so before Socrates, the soul was not really considered that important. It was like a shadow or something, an afterthought, not the main focus of everything that he turned it into. Before Socrates, the focus was much more on the outside world, the universe, the cosmos, nature, understanding, cause and effect, much more like real science. And Socrates inverts all of that. So it's kind of a transition from materialism to idealism. In large part, that's what Socrates represents. For Socrates, real truth is not in this material world. It's in this place beyond heaven, the ideal realm, the realm of the forms, where the eternal, pure, perfect ideas that everything in this world is just a perfect reflection of exist. Socrates also represents a shift from the time of Homer, which is all about heroes and warriors and strength and battle and those kinds of manly virtues. But with Socrates, it becomes all about basically a war of words, intellectual virtues, things that are inside of you, things that can't necessarily be seen.
So it goes from being all about action to being all about talk. Socrates represents that more than anyone. And so Socrates wasn't much to look at. He never really accomplished anything much. He was all talk. Um, and Nietzsche famously hates Socrates. Um, more than anyone else, I think he goes after Socrates with special ferocity. And he went after just about everyone. He sees Socrates as kind of the start of all the problems in the world. And so Nietzsche claims that Socrates represents decadence and declining life. Um, when all of your value, all of your worth, all of your focus is inside rather than manifest. So it's this kind of doubleness, this dualism, that there's the physical body, the material world, but that's less important for Socrates than the soul and the ideal world. And this kind of dualism, this split, um, Nietzsche thinks is a big problem, and it leads to all kinds of idealism, which for Nietzsche, as for Marx, um, takes us away from materialism, which is what we should be focused on if we want to, you know, do philosophy correctly. So how did Socrates spend his time? Uh, he didn't really work. He hung around the marketplace. It was called the Agora. And that's where everyone would hang out. It was the most lively populated place. He had a group of young men who followed him around. They were generally from rich families, aristocratic offspring who didn't have anything to do really. So they would just follow Socrates around and he was that he would uh, get in arguments with people. And they would cheer him on and laugh at his opponents. And none of his followers really worked either. They just kind of, you know, trailed around him. Socrates himself did not come from a wealthy background. His father was a stonecutter and his mother was a midwife. He didn't receive a formal education. As Nietzsche says in his critique of Socrates, Socrates was rabble. He was lowborn, a commoner. He was ugly, rude, always drunk, stayed up all night, a terrible husband, and on and on. And so his wealthy fans must have seen him as like an interesting novelty. And they enjoyed the social and political role that he played, which was to humiliate and discredit the sophists. His opponents were the sophists. And Plato, of course, the guy who wrote everything down, Socrates didn't write anything down, he just talked. Plato wrote it all out. Uh, and Socrates, uh, Plato was Socrates' biggest fan. And Plato was, you know, a descendant of a very rich family with a formal education, he helped Socrates a lot, as did other elite members of ancient Athens, because they enjoyed the way he went around mocking the sophists. And so who were his opponents? The people he argued with, again, they were called sophists. So who were the sophists? They were educators who would teach the rising middle class of artisans and craftsmen the speaking skills they needed in order to do well in Greek democracy. So democracy means you can rise or fall based on how well you speak. At least back then, speaking was how you distinguished yourself. Democracy was a very new thing in the world back then. The ancient Greeks invented it in Athens. And so it required the role that sophists played, public educators who could help the rising middle class of uh, people figure out how to participate in democracy and excel in it. And so if you were just a random guy, but you could give amazing speeches, you could go pretty far. But the art of speaking well is not innate. Most people aren't born with it, but you can learn it. Socrates was born with it. Um, and so that's what the sophists did. That was their social and economic and political role, to help people who wanted to advance in society to participate in democracy more fully, become politicians or whatever they wanted uh, to achieve that. And Socrates' role was to destroy all of that as much as possible. And so you can see the political, social, and economic uh, things that are going on here. That was driving a lot of it.
And so the sophists played a key role in democracy, and Socrates didn't. He hated democracy. His role was to fuck all of that up. And so we can see how Socrates spent all of his time finding the most popular and influential sophists in the marketplace or the agora, and he would get into these very big public confrontations with them, with his group of rich, bratty, young assholes laughing and cheering him on. And he would always leave the sophists humiliated and discredited and confused and doubting themselves. And if you read the dialogues of Plato, where it's all written out, the effect is like your head spins and like you're getting a headache trying to follow what he's saying. So imagine having to follow that and respond to it in real time. And so that's why his opponents usually just give up uh, eventually. And they make some excuse like, I have an answer, but I'm late for lunch, so let's continue this later. They just you know figure out a way to get out of the conversation. So this confusion, this storm of words, is the dialectic. But it's a special kind of dialectic, a negative dialectic, that starts from nowhere and goes nowhere because it's not designed to do anything other than discredit and confuse his opponent. So it's dialectics as a weapon, but a weapon of the ruling class to try to undermine democracy. And the sophists were not nihilists like Socrates was. Sophists had to believe in things in order to charge money for it. They had knowledge and beliefs, and they would share it for a small fee with people who could afford it and who thought it was a good investment. And they had to earn a living, but they weren't weird freaks like Socrates who could just have rich friends pay for everything. And also Socrates was such a weirdo, he didn't really need food or shelter too much. He would just like pass out drunk on cheap wine and stay outside for days on end in the rain and not really care because he was, you know, a weird fucking freak. Uh, And so what is a sophist? Sophist comes from the Greek word sophia, which means wisdom. So the sophists weren't philosophers. They were sophists. Socrates was a philosopher. So philosopher means someone who loves wisdom. The difference is that a sophist is someone who just has wisdom and sells it. A philosopher is someone who just loves it, who just loves wisdom. He doesn't necessarily have it, but pursues it out of love, basically. As Socrates said, I cannot teach anybody anything. I can only make them think. And here I think we can see some of Socrates' elitism. He walked around constantly thinking that nobody knew how to think except him, that it was his job to make people think because they weren't doing it at all, that they were just waiting around for him to show them how to think. And so this is a very condescending attitude to have toward the mass of people, that they're all idiots. And so Socrates posed as an idiot, claiming to know nothing. But this was bullshit, like everything with Socrates, for the most part. If he didn't think he knew anything, if he thought he was a moron, then he wouldn't go around trying to make everyone think. So he's full of shit in a lot of ways. Uh, So he claims to know nothing, to have nothing to teach. But this is the exact opposite of the sophists, who did have knowledge and skills that they would teach people. Socrates can only make people think. He just loves wisdom. He doesn't have it. And love isn't about controlling or having anything. It's about being in a relationship, a relationship with the truth. And it won't be a good relationship if you're trying to control it or pin it down. There has to be a certain looseness and freedom for it to really be love. And so sophists didn't love wisdom. They sold it. They didn't have time to love wisdom. They were busy working. And notice that loving wisdom in this way seems like kind of a privilege to be able to just pursue something that you love for no real reason other than it's the truth. So a sophist was trying to earn a living by selling wisdom. And who did they sell wisdom to? Not rich people. They didn't need it because they had power already. But to the rising lower classes, the middle class of artisans and craftsmen in the Agora who wanted to advance an Athenian democracy. 
So Socrates didn't have to work. He had his rich friends pay for everything. And he wasn't doing what he did to benefit any of the common people. He was doing it to entertain his rich friends and to undermine an important part of the new democracy in Athens, the sophists and their clients. So there's a fundamental contradiction with Socrates. He claims to know nothing and to have no knowledge. So he's very nihilistic. But he attacks the sophists because they don't believe in universal objective truth. This is one of the main problems that Socrates has with the sophists, is that they're relativists. So they all believe, the sophists all believe that truth is relative. One of the most prominent sophists was named Protagoras, and he taught that man is the measure of all things, meaning that there is no objective way to measure anything like justice or beauty or truth, but rather it comes from within us, that each person figures out how to define or measure those things. There's no objective standard for it. And so this is relativism, and it applies to morality and truth and beauty. The idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, that was applied to everything for the sophists. And Socrates hated this because he thought that there were objective universal things like truth and beauty and justice, but they didn't exist in this world. They existed in the place beyond heaven, the realm of the forms, where all the perfect eternal ideas existed. And so if you were a really smart philosopher like Socrates, then you can understand these perfect things and get your soul in the right condition to mirror the eternal objective universal truths. And then you would take on those characteristics and have perfect knowledge, basically. So you love truth in order to become more like truth. You love beauty in order to become more beautiful. And so truth and beauty and justice and all those things, they have objective universal existence for Socrates. And if we love them correctly, then we can take on that existence. For the sophists, it was more that man is the creator of all of these things. That beauty, truth, justice are things that we sort of make up ourselves. And this is Nietzsche's position, of course. Nietzsche was a relativist. So that's another reason that Nietzsche hates Socrates. Okay. And so again, Socrates claims to know nothing and to believe in nothing. But he also criticizes the sophists for being relativists and for not thinking that there are perfect, objective truths to be known. So, you know, it seems like there's a contradiction here. So, is Socrates a nihilist who believes in nothing, or does he believe in objective, universal truths? And why is he mad at the sophists if they're relativists who don't believe in any substantial thing? Right? And we also see the anti-democratic tendency here, that truth exists on high, literally beyond heaven, and only the smartest philosophers have access to it, not the common man. And so, in a democracy, relativism is important. People can have their own ideas about what's right and what to do and so on, but Socrates and Plato think that there should basically be philosopher kings in charge, the smart guys who tell everyone what's what. So that's what Socrates is really fighting for. He was fighting for an intellectual aristocracy where the smart guys who could have access to the perfect, ideal, objective, universal truths told everyone what to do, and the lower people just sort of went along with it. And the sophists fucked all of that up by teaching the middle and lower classes how to think and how to speak so they could participate fully in the democracy. So the sophists, again, their whole existence, socially, economically, and politically, was tied into a rising democracy. And Socrates, his whole existence was tied into fucking that up as much as possible. 
and he was very good at it. So there's one key event in Socrates' life early on where he sort of realized what he could do. Uh, so one time in the Agora, of course, where it all went down, Socrates sought out an Athenian politician who had a reputation for being wise. And so Socrates says, quote, when I talked with him, I came to see that though many people and he himself thought that he was wise, he was not wise. Then I tried to prove to him that he was not wise, though he really thought he was. Doing so made him indignant and many of the bystanders as well. So when I went away, I thought to myself, I am wiser than this man. Neither of us knows anything that is really worth knowing. But he thinks that he has knowledge when he has not. Well, I, having no knowledge, do not think that I have. I seem, at any rate, to be a little wiser than he is on this point. I do not think that I know what I do not know. Hmm. So at least he knows nothing, Socrates is saying. And the other guy, the Athenian politician who was very famous and respected, didn't even know that he knew nothing. So he knew less than nothing. So Socrates is saying that Nothing is a level of knowledge that he had at least attained, but nobody else had even attained that much. So he's trying to bring people up out of their ignorance and into at least knowing nothing. So he views knowing nothing as a step up. So nothingness is sort of the end point of all of his dialectics and arguments and all of his philosophical efforts. He wants to bring people up to a point where they know nothing. So that doesn't sound very helpful, (laughs) but that's what he did. So his fellow Athenians were ignorant of the truth, but they didn't even know they were ignorant. So they were afflicted with a multiple or double ignorance. They were ignorant about their own ignorance. So you don't even know that you know nothing. So I'm going to explain to you how you're too stupid to even know how stupid you are. That's sort of the attitude and the energy that Socrates was operating with. And it's the biggest asshole energy of all time. Um, so it's, you know, not too surprising that they killed him. The only surprise is that it took as long as it did. They didn't kill him until he was 71. So he was doing this for decades and decades. And I guess, you know, the fact that he had powerful, wealthy friends and this big posse around him all the time, you know, probably protected him. Um, and so the souls of his fellow Athenians were not functioning properly and they needed help from a philosophical doctor. And that's what Socrates thought he was. He, re- he referred to himself as a midwife of the soul. So his mom was a midwife and he sort of took on that uh, task, but not like a physical doctor who actually delivered babies. That's what a midwife is. It's someone who delivers babies. Uh, so he was helping people give birth to the truth within themselves that would heal their souls. And so again, this is another example of his elitism, I think. Being a doctor is elite, and especially one who claims to be able to improve your soul. A doctor of the soul. What is more bougie than that? It's like Gwyneth Paltrow goop shit. Goop shit. And so Socrates' mission was to make people aware of their own ignorance. This is one of the paradoxes of Socrates. He claimed he knew nothing, but he went around all day telling people how stupid they were. So this is another indication that he was full of shit. So in 399 BC, at age 71... Socrates was finally put on trial by the people of Athens on two charges, corrupting the youth and of believing in the new gods of reason more than the traditional polytheistic mythological gods of Mount Olympus, Zeus, and all those people. Well, not people, but gods. You know what I mean. And so the Athenian Athenian legal system 
sought the death penalty for these crimes. He was accused of being a neologian. Neo meaning new, logian from logos. So someone who comes up with new words, new ideas, new logics that go against the established system of beliefs, basically. And so in the Athenian courtroom, you could argue for your life before the jury made up of 500 fellow Athenians who were chosen at random. You didn't have a lawyer. You argued on your own behalf for your life. So there was no judge, just the enormous jury deciding your fate. And so the defense that you gave on your own behalf was called an apologia or apology. And so the apology of Socrates is very famous. Uh, but it's not an apology in the way that we think of an apology where you're begging for forgiveness or saying you're sorry or, you know, trying to explain why you did what you did and how you regret it and whatever. It's not that. Uh, he wasn't saying he was sorry for what he did. He was defending his conduct. And he was sort of telling them that if they killed him, then they were doing something wrong. And then they would have to apologize for all of history, basically. And he was kind of right about that. Because in general, the perception about the death of Socrates is that they shouldn't have killed him. He was just talking, whatever, freedom of speech, cancel culture, gone crazy, whatever. So, yeah, he was kind of right that they fucked up by killing him. But they had the reasons. Because, as I've been trying to explain, he was a threat to democracy. And democracy, back then when it just started... And, you know, throughout all of history, even today, especially today, it's very fragile. So if you have this guy who's like a walking fucking weapon against democracy, you got to take him out, folks. Okay, so this is part of the apology of Socrates in the courtroom explaining what he did to a jury of his peers. Ahem. As long as I have breath and strength, I will not give up philosophy and and encouraging you and declaring the truth to every one of you whom I meet. If I think that he has not attained excellence, though he says he has, I shall reproach him for undervaluing the most valuable things, true knowledge, and overvaluing those that are less valuable. This I shall do to everyone whom I meet, young or old, citizen or stranger, for I spend my whole life in going about and persuading you all to give your first and greatest care to the improvement of your souls, and not till you have done that to think of your bodies or your wealth. He continues, And now, Athenians, I am not arguing in my own defense at all, as you might expect me to do, but rather in yours, in order that you may not make a mistake, by condemning me. For if you put me to death, you will not easily find another who clings to the state as a sort of gadfly to a horse that is large and well-bred, but rather sluggish because of its size, so that it needs to be aroused. It seems to me that the God has attached me like that to the state, for I am constantly landing on you at every point to arouse, persuade, and reproach each of you all day long. You will not easily find anyone else, my friends, to fill my place. And if you are persuaded by me, you will spare my life. Okay. So there are a few things to note about this apology. He emphasizes the importance of the soul, of course, because that was always his focus. So he wants people to focus on their soul before any material thing. And this seems like rich guy shit. You have to be rich in the first place to even think about your soul. Uh, you know, this is self-care, Gwyneth Paltrow goop all over again. And it shows how out of touch Socrates was with the common people. He saw everyone caring more about their material well-being than their soul. And so this sounds like he's critiquing people for being, you know, uh, bougie, aristocratic, and only caring about wealth or whatever. But that's not the case. If you're poor or middle class, as most people were back then and still are today, um, 
or trying to move up in the world, trying to work for a living. You have to worry about your material circumstances. So he wants to persuade everyone to give their greatest care to improving their souls and only afterwards to care about their body or their wealth. And this was very anti-Greek. The Greeks, so that's why Socrates was so different. People didn't really know how to deal with them. And he constantly caught people off guard. And he knew that people didn't know how to deal with them. You know, and he enjoyed that. And so the Greeks were about taking care of body and enjoying your body and enjoying food and making a living and working hard and all of that. And Socrates wants to go against all of that and get people to ignore body and, you know, money and the things you need to survive. Uh, because he didn't really have to worry about any of that shit because his rich friends, you know, hooked him up. Uh, and so he says, no, forget all that stuff and focus on this weird shadow realm of the soul inside of you. This thing that you can't see that doesn't get you anything that does nothing for you and might as well not fucking exist. That should be your whole focus. Ignore politics, ignore economics, ignore everything else. Ignore your body, ignore, you know, the pleasures of life, whatever. Just focus on your soul. And, you know, as I've been saying, it's easy for Socrates to say because he had his material needs taken care of for the most part. And he didn't really live this way either. He was very hedonistic. He was constantly drunk, constantly, you know, uh, <laughs> cheating on his wife with younger men. My God. Um, so he didn't really care about his soul. I'm sure his soul was horrible. This is another one of Nietzsche's critiques of Socrates. Um, monstrum in fronte, monstrum in animo. Something like that. A Latin phrase meaning, uh, if you have a monstrous face, you have a monstrous soul. And Socrates was very ugly. If you look up a picture of Socrates, he looks like some kind of weird pig, demon kind of guy. Um, he looks very different from any other, like, image or, you know, bust or statue of an ancient Greek guy. Um, and so for Nietzsche, you know, if you're ugly, on the outside, you're ugly the whole way through. And so you can imagine what Socrates' soul would look like if his face looked like that. So, yeah, I don't think Socrates really paid much attention to his own soul. Because he was too busy, you know, being hedonistic and worrying about material things, basically. And he was too busy focusing on everyone else's shit. Um, so, you know, very hypocritical. Didn't take care of his own soul for the most part. Treated his wife like shit. Um, he was always out, you know, getting drunk with college students, basically, even as an old man, um, just humiliating, uh, sophists who were just trying to earn a living, basically. And so the soul and consciousness is kind of this internal trap that you can never get out of when you focus on it too much. And so if you're constantly looking within, then you're not going to be able to engage in politics or anything that people were supposed to be doing in ancient Athenian democracy. So he was claiming to try to help people, but focusing on your soul all the time, being very inward looking, it doesn't help anyone else. And it doesn't really help you because there's no end to it. The soul is this infinite abyss, this maze. And so I think this is another part of Nietzsche's critique of Socrates, where Nietzsche famously says, you know, don't look into the abyss because the abyss looks also into you. Um, so focusing too much on your soul, yourself, self-care, all that shit, it's a trap. So Socrates was really laying traps um, under the guise or under the pretense of helping people. Um, so kind of like he had borderline personality disorder. 
That's what they do. BPD. Socrates was the first BPD person. Um, and so he compares the Athenian state, which was a democracy, to a large horse, which is sluggish because of its size, and so it needs to be aroused. And so this idea that everyone in the, demo- in the democracy was stupid, basically, like a horse that's just standing there, and so a horse needs a gadfly, he compares himself to a gadfly, which is basically a big fly that bites a horse and annoys it. So he's saying that the gadfly is actually good for the horse, because without the gadfly, then the horse wouldn't be on its toes. It would just get fat and stupid and lazy, and it needs to be bitten and annoyed and provoked and so on for its own good. And so he's saying that the state of Athens, the democracy, was the same way. And so I think we can see again here his elitism in the sense that he imagines everyone is just sort of waiting around and stupid and not doing anything or thinking anything, like a horse just standing there until the fly comes along. But that's not the case with horses or with people. Horses are moving around all the time. They're running around, they're doing all kinds of things, they're in battle, they're you know doing farm work, whatever. They're not just perfectly stationary waiting for a fly to make them move or whatever. It's not like the horse would be fat and stupid and pointless without the fly. The fly is not saving the horse necessarily. The horse is probably fine without the fucking fly. The fly is just an annoying nuisance. And so this is very common sense. But Socrates, at every point, frustrates and attacks common sense because he was attacking the commoners, the common people, democracy, all of that. So he wants to get you to doubt what you know. So he's not teaching you anything. And he's not really, he is making you think, but he's making you doubt what you already know. He's not building on any knowledge. He wants to sort of break you down and get you to doubt the most obvious basic common things, basic truths, such as a fly isn't good for a horse and a Socrates isn't good for a democracy. And so it's not like the average person in ancient Athens was dumb and stupid and pointless without Socrates coming along along to make them think. And it's not like the average horse was just waiting around for a fucking fly to come and attack it so then it could, you know, be improved. And he talks about how important he is. He says that he will not, that, you know, the people will not find another one like him to provide this valuable service. Um, but was the service that valuable? Not really. Teaching people that they know nothing, like that's trying to get them to doubt the common sense that they're raised around. That's not really that valuable of a service. So here he is kind of hinting at the fact that he does think he's a genius and he thinks he's very rare and unique and special, even though he always says that he's not. So, very elite, but posturing as some kind of commoner or some kind of regular populist, whatever. So in all of this, we can see that Socrates claims to love truth and all of that, but it's basically bullshit. So it's not that he was lying. It's that he was bullshitting more. And so bullshit is actually worse than lies. Uh, There was a good book written about bullshit um, like, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago by this Princeton philosopher named Harry Frankfurt. It's called On Bullshit. Uh, so he gets into the distinction between bullshit and lies. And he points out that bullshit is worse than lies and it's much more common than lies. Um, so to tell a lie is to have a truth that you're concealing for various reasons. But Socrates didn't have any truth that he was concealing. I think he was honest about the fact that he didn't really have any knowledge that he was concealing. He was sort of this void, this abyss, but not like a good void. Because sometimes a void can you know, lead to possibility. Socrates is like this 
purely negative void that just sucks you in and there's nothing that comes out of it. So since Socrates didn't have any truth that he was concealing, he wasn't really even capable of lying. So again, lying is knowing a truth that you misdirect people away from. That's what a lie is. So you have some kind of truth in your back pocket, but you're pointing people in the opposite direction to, you know, fuck with them. So lying would have been a step up from what he did. He didn't really lie. He was a bullshitter. And bullshitting is kind of between truth and lie. So it's neither one nor the other. Bullshit can pass for truth if you sell it well. So the definition of bullshitting that Frankfurt comes up with is indifference to truth. So you don't really care one way or the other if what you're saying is true or a lie. Uh, you don't care about the truth. You're not trying to get to the truth. But you're also not trying to conceal the truth because you don't know the truth. And that's what a lie is. And this is, I think, extremely common, more than anything else. I don't think people are lying all the time, but they are bullshitting. They're just trying to get through whatever you know, job or assignment or homework or annoying interaction or whatever else by just, you know, saying words and trying to pass it off like something, but they don't really care if what they're saying is true or false. It's just bullshit. And that's sort of what we're swimming in all the time, more and more every day. Um, because, you know, bullshit's so common that people don't even really see, see it as bullshit. Bullshitters can often pass themselves off as honest or as compelling or as saying something real, but they aren't. And so I think this is what Trump did more than anything. The media would always call him a liar and do fact checking, uh, which was stupid. The Washington Post gave him like uh, Pinocchios based on how bad his lie was or whatever. Like, oh, Trump earned four Pinocchios out of five with his most recent lie. Blah, blah, blah. But Trump didn't really know enough to lie, I don't think. I don't think he had this truth that he was concealing, which is what a lie is. What he did was bullshitting. Just, you know, imagine, think of anything Trump has said, some interview, speech, whatever. It's bullshit. It's not necessarily a lie. And I think calling it a lie or calling him a liar all the time sort of gave him too much credit. Um, so he was bullshitting. He was indifferent to truth or lying. What he cared about was power and about himself and about winning. So he was able to get a lot of people to take his bullshit as truth. But the other half viewed his bullshit as lies. But they were both sort of wrong. Trump wasn't some kind of edgy truth teller. Uh, he wasn't sticking it to the elites or whatever. He wasn't speaking truth to power. He was bullshitting to power and to everyone. Um, but he also, so he wasn't this like tell it like it is guy, like some of his supporters thought. But he also wasn't the pure liar that liberals thought he was. So his, you know, so-called populism was based on him uh, sort of speaking truth to power or telling it like it is, which he wasn't doing at all. He was bullshitting. He didn't care about how, you know, how it is or the way things really are. People would often say, I like Trump because he tells it like it is. No, he doesn't tell it like it is. He bullshits. Not that he was lying, but he was bullshitting. So he didn't care about anything, just like Socrates didn't care about anything. So someone who bullshits a lot is basically a buffoon or a clown, which is what Trump is. And Nietzsche says of Socrates that he was the fool who got himself taken seriously. And I think that's a perfect description of Trump. Trump was never really serious. Now, there's this theory out there that he sort of uh, ran his campaign or just floated it out there. 
you know, as an as a negotiating tactic for the last season of The Apprentice. They, he was like, if you don't give me a big raise for the new season season of The Apprentice, I'm going to run for president and I'll win. But then it sort of took on a life of its own. And at a, at a certain point, he like started to believe in it. But for the most part, he was just kind of being a fool, but he got taken seriously. And then it <laughs> went way too fucking far. Um, and he always sort of seemed surprised that he was president. That like that it really happened to me. I don't know. And so Nietzsche also says that Socrates was dishonest. Nietzsche describes the dialectical method of Socrates by saying, quote, honest things like honest men do not carry their reasons exposed in this fashion. It is indecent to display all of one's goods. What has first to have itself proved is of but little value. End quote. Love that. And so Socrates would try to get very exhaustive and perfect definitions from his opponents, from the sophists. He would find a sophist who would claim to be an expert on justice or truth, and he would ask for the most precise definitions of those things. And Socrates would give his own little refinements of the definition that the sophist gave in response. And Socrates would always find some little problem with the definition, like it was incomplete, or he would find some way to spin it around and so the definition would have to be revised endlessly back and forth. That's kind of what the Socratic, um, what the Platonic dialogues are. It's the soph- it's Socrates asking a sophist for a definition. The sophist gives them a definition. Socrates finds a problem with it. They go back and forth. And it's never good enough for Socrates, of course. And so that's why the sophist at the end of the conversation is usually just like, well, this is great, but I got to run. We can continue this later, whatever. Um, and so... Socrates wanted to try to make the definitions as perfect as possible. So nothing was hidden and everything had to be scrutinized and totally transparent and, you know, subjected to the pure blistering light of reason itself. And so this is a form of dishonesty, Nietzsche thinks, that trying to open everything up and find this total clarity, this radical clarity is the opposite of real truth. That truth requires clarity to an extent but it also requires some kind of illusion or darkness. And if things are too open, then the truth sort of, you know, falls away or, you know, dies in the sunlight. Like if you leave a plant in the sunlight too long, well, I don't know if that's true. I don't have plants, but sunlight can dry things out and kill things. So Socrates was so open-minded that his brain sort of fell out. And if you're too open-minded, then you're not going to get to the truth. If it's just pure, radical sunlight, then you're going to miss the truth. And so to get to the truth, you have to, to some extent, make things darker. Because that's when the truth comes out. And so Socrates made the sophists seem like they were dishonest because they couldn't provide total, complete, perfect definitions to truth or justice or whatever else, or beauty. Because that level of precise definition only exists in math and science, not with beauty, truth, or justice, or whatever. And so the sophists were correct to not have these perfect mathematical definitions of truth and beauty and justice that Socrates wanted, because those kinds of things can't be answered with the same degree of precision that, like, geometrical questions can be, you know. Truth is not about fucking geometry, but Socrates claimed that it was, and that's wrong. So Socrates was asking for something impossible. He wanted perfect definitions of basically subjective things like beauty and truth and justice. And so it's dishonest to act to ask for total, complete 
total completeness about things that can't be completely known. And so in trying to be super open and honest and, you know, comprehensive and precise as Socrates was, he was actually being the opposite. He was concealing things. He was being dishonest. He was destroying the truth. Okay. And so this brings us to the very end of Socrates' life. So after his apology that wasn't a real apology, he was sentenced to death. So he could have made a different argument that would have been more likely to lead to his freedom. He could have, you know, defended himself on the basis of free speech, which was very important to the ancient Greeks, but that didn't really even come up in his argument. And if he made a free speech case, probably would have worked, but he didn't do that. And he didn't take the easy escape that was offered to him by his friends afterwards. So after the trial, he's sort of in this chamber getting ready to drink the hemlock, the poison drink that was going to kill him. And he had all these well-connected friends who were like, man, we can get you out of here. We have a boat coming. Just, you know, climb out the window. We'll help you. You don't have to die. But he wanted to die. There's no question of that. And so he says to one of his friends before he dies, now we go our separate ways, you to live and I to die, and we can't be sure who's better off, basically. So it's very much an open question for Socrates if life is better than death. And again, this is an inversion of common sense yet again. I think it's very obvious that life is better than death. But Socrates all the time tries to get people to doubt their common sense, even with respect to if death is better than life, which clearly it isn't. He also tells his friend Crito to give a rooster or a cock to Asclepius, who is a god of medicine, which is something you redo, uh, something you do to repay being cured of an illness. So he's referring to life itself as a long illness. So this, again, shows the low regard he had for life. So for Socrates, life was just being sick for a long time. So, and he wanted to die. So why did he want to die? Why was life an illness for him? Could it be that the contradiction at the center of his existence of claiming to love truth, but really being a constant liar, finally got to him? And as the ideal philosopher, the most complete and the most famous philosopher of all time, he loved truth more than anyone ever did, because that's what philosophy is. Philosophy means love of truth or love of wisdom. So there can be no question of that, that he was fully dedicated to that. But loving truth, like loving anything else, means having a complicated relationship to it. Love is the most complicated thing. So perhaps he constantly lied precisely in order to generate truth. If you love truth, you have to lie a lot in order to get the truth to love you back, basically, if truth is a woman. That's sort of, you know, how it works with women sometimes. So he had to lie to generate truth. And I think this is the misery at the center of existence, that truth and lie, love and hate, war and peace, life and death rely on each other so much that they are indistinguishable. And once you realize that, as Socrates did more than anyone else, death becomes, you know, not that bad of an option. Okay, well, that's my spiel about Socrates. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.